Welcome to Epiphany Fellowships Podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care. Nehemiah chapter 5 today. If you get that up on the screens, we will get started. I would like, I'm going to have you guys read it. So we're going to read it, be in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Let's read that together, and then we will pray and get started. So I'll get you started with, let's start off. There was a widespread outcry. Amen. I want to title this message, A God-Oriented Response to Injustice. Let's pray. Mm. Holy Father, what a great delight it is to gather with your people, to lift our voices in songs of worship to you, to give of our resources, to build your kingdom. And now, Lord God, to hear from you through your word. 
We praise you for your good word. You have not left us without guidance, but you have spoken to us through your precious word. Use me, Lord God, to make your word clear to your people. But I am just a man. It is you and you alone who can change hearts. And so through the preaching of your word, you change me, you change these, your people, so we might more glorify your son. Amen. You can be seated. Justice. It's a word that we see all over the news today. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. Justice is all over the place. It's being talked about. It's being preached about. It's being discussed everywhere. I can remember a couple of years back, about three years ago, when the, this conversation started to arise about justice. And at the time, to be honest with you, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, it wasn't that big of a deal for me. I was busy. I had two little kids and career and all kinds of stuff going on. And I, I just, not that I didn't care, I just couldn't be bothered, honestly. And I remember uh, it was July of 2014. And I was working down in Wilmington, Delaware, um, going from one meeting to another at my job. And as was my custom, as I'm moving from one conference room to another conference room to talk about something, I pull out my phone and I scan the headlines real quick. And all over the headlines was, were headlines all about Eric Garner. And I was like, what is going on? What is all this? And so I click on the link, scroll through the article, and in the middle of the article there was a, a link to YouTube for a video. So I normally didn't do this, but I clicked the video, watched it, and I was horrified to see a man get choked to death before my eyes. And I can remember it like it was yesterday. I was standing in that hallway outside the conference room, looking at my phone, and, and, and I, my immediate thought, I actually said it out loud. I said, these guys are going to jail. That was July. And then December, as horrified as I was when I first watched that video, I was more horrified when nothing happened. They didn't go to jail. They didn't even get indicted. There wasn't even a trial. Nothing happened. And I was shook. I can remember driving down Martin Luther King Drive, of all places, and just thinking in my head, like, could a man be killed and nothing happened? Could that happen to me? I was shaken. For some of you, maybe it was Michael Brown. For others, maybe it was Trayvon. For me, it was Eric Garner. Shook me. Injustice used to be this concept out there. Injustice happens out there somewhere in the ether. But it went from being this concept to being real. I had watched a man die. And so I was upset and I was angry, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to handle it. And if you're in that place where you, you have some of those questions, then this message is for you. And maybe you're like me before I got woke up. And you're just busy with life. 
That's okay. This message is also for you. I really like the term woke that has become popular in our society now, or I guess it's come back. It's always been, been around. Because what it, what it implies is that before you are woke, that you're asleep, or that you're blind. And when you get woke, you, you, you see, you, you, you wake up. And although many of us, and I used to be like this, are not physically blind, I think in many ways we are morally blind. And this passage of scripture in Nehemiah chapter 5, there is a parallel circumstance, a time when Israel has a lot of moral blindness. And so I want to unpack this particular passage of scripture that the Lord in his great providence has sought fit to preserve for us. I want to unpack that and and talk about how is it that we can have a God-oriented response to injustice. Before I do that, I want to give you some background, just in case you're not familiar with the book of Nehemiah or the person of Nehemiah. And so bear with me for a little bit as I kind of give you, lay some foundation before we get to here in chapter 5. Nehemiah is a political leader. He is an important man. He's an official in the king's court. He's the king's cupbearer. And that didn't just mean you carried the wine. It meant that you were one of the king's close confidants. Not everybody was trusted to serve the king food, right? Because poisoning, assassination was a risk. And so to be appointed as the cupbearer meant that the king trusted you implicitly. You were someone that he spent a lot of time with. And so Nehemiah is a political leader. He's an important person in the kingdom at this time. But not just that, he's also a Jew. He is an exile, or the the son of, of exiles, and he's actually not, even though he's a political leader, this isn't his homeland. And so his brother goes back to Jerusalem while he is in Susa, um, one of the, 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 time, the, the Persian cities at that time. His brother goes back to Jerusalem, and when he comes back, Nehemiah asks him, he says, how are my people doing? How is Jerusalem? And his brother says, man, it's bad back home. People are struggling. The walls are torn down. There is a lot of disgrace. And this breaks Nehemiah's heart. Because even though he has a high position, his heart is for his people. Unlike me, he was already woke. And so what what he did is he he got down on his knees and he prayed. And he came up with a plan. He said, I want to go back and help my people. I want to leave this powerful position next to the king and go back and serve my people. Because they are in disgrace. And so in chapter 2, he makes this request to the king. Can I go back to Jerusalem and and help my people? Can I rebuild the walls? And the Lord answers his prayer, and the king says, okay, you can head back to the walls. And, And just to show how important Nehemiah was to him, he sent a full military escort with him. So he's traveling back in style to Jerusalem. He arrives in Jerusalem, and he inspects the walls, and he confirms that, yes, this is a bad situation. At the end of chapter 2, he calls on the people in Jerusalem to help. Let's, let's get together and rebuild our city. Let's, let's rebuild our neighborhoods. Let's fix things up. Let's take care of, of our shame. And in chapter 3, they respond. They, 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 they look at Nehemiah, and he inspires them to get to work. And so in chapter 3, we find all these people are, are, are getting to work. They're rebuilding the walls, and you get this sense of progress. Things are moving. Things are happening. 
The old neighborhood is getting fixed up. Chapter 4, there is opposition to their progress. But how do the people respond? They respond by persevering through the difficulty. And so, in chapter 1, we find out about these people, these Jews that are, that are struggling, that are defeated, that are in disgrace. By chapter 4, you get the sense that they are holding their heads high. They are working and building their neighborhood up, and they're carrying their weapons ready to protect their homes and their families. And so there's great progress, great momentum. Everything is good. We're on the come up. But then you get to chapter 5. And in the midst of the progress, in the midst of the empty lots turning into new condos, in the midst of the new Trader Joe's and the renovated Whole Foods, there is injustice. Wrapped up in it, part and parcel of it, right alongside of it, progress and injustice. And so we arrive here in chapter 5, and the scripture said there was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. In chapter 4, the, the opposition, the persecution is external. It's coming in towards the community. But now it's internal. The outcry isn't against those people out there oppressing me, but it's my own brother, my own sister that's oppressing me. And there is a particular pain when injustice comes from those who you would expect to help and aid you. And so we come to chapter 5, and there's a widespread outcry. But what is the nature of this injustice? Look with me at, chapter, at verse 2. It says, Some were saying, We, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. The first outcry is real basic. People are hungry. That's it. They're hungry. And it's a little hard to celebrate the gentrifying Jerusalem when you can't put food on your table and feed your kids. It's a little hard. And so people are hungry. What does it look like today, in our day? Stock market is at an all-time high. The jobless rate is dropping. New construction happening in urban areas, even in our own city, we can see it. Yet in the midst of all this national progress, just a few weeks ago, one of the members of our congregation told me that her family members were in Puerto Rico were eating from one can of food. Right here in our neighborhood, fathers and mothers are feeding their kids through the Epiphany Food Co-op. In the midst of the progress, there is hunger. Right alongside of it. He goes on, he says, others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children. Yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. 
The first outcry was about hunger. The second outcry is about economic exploitation. That these poor people were, were coming to, to the rich, coming to the powerful, and they're saying, we're, we're hungry. And they say, I'll help you. But in exchange for helping you, I need you to give me your land. Because your land is valuable and I want that. And so I'm not going to just help you. No, I want something from you. Because if, if you give me your land, that means you no longer have control of the produce. I do. But how are you going to feed yourself if you don't have your land? And so these people were kept in bondage through the oppression of the rich. And because they couldn't pay these debts back, they would then foreclose on them and take their children into slavery to work off their debt. Not chattel slavery as we might have, in, we had in America, but a, a form of indentured servitude was common at this time. And so we have on the one hand, hunger, and on the other hand, economic exploitation. But what does that exploitation look like today in our time? It looks like payday lenders who will help you with money to buy groceries, but they want 400% interest. That's for a one-week loan. You want a two-week loan? That'll be 750% interest. Economic exploitation. People on average stay in bondage to these payday lenders for 11 months or longer, paying multiples of what they originally borrowed. Economic exploitation. But how are we to respond? What does a God-oriented response to injustice look like? What do we do? Look with me at verse 6, which leads me to my first point. If you're going to have a God-oriented response to injustice, you first have to engage emotionally. Nehemiah says, I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. To engage emotionally is a prerequisite to any kind of action. You have to actually care. You have to see the struggles of someone else, even when you are on the come up, and care enough to feel their pain. Care enough to grieve when they grieve. Care enough to be angry and frustrated that they are being oppressed. You have to engage emotionally. You have to get beyond the selfish individualism that says, I am not my brother's keeper. We have to engage emotionally, listen to their stories, understand their pain, weep with them even when you have reason to celebrate. Nehemiah was a political leader. He had the king's ear. He had servants. He had resources. But he listened and he engaged emotionally. He got angry. This wasn't a new situation. There had been other governors, other leaders, other nobles and officials, we find out later, but they didn't care. 
In fact, they, they were benefiting from the situation. And so if you are going to have a God-oriented response to injustice, you have to engage emotionally. As Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. once said, he said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Why did he say that? Because there is a common, very, very common sense in which, because I'm good, I'm not oppressed, I'm not hungry, then I ignore the fact that others are. And so he's saying, if you see injustice, be threatened by it. Feel it the way as if you were the one being persecuted. Injustice anywhere is a threat to injustice everywhere. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Or to put it the way that Christ put it in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. He told this story of a man who was caught by robbers and beaten up and left on the street bloody. And a scribe came by, a religious official, and a, a Pharisee came by, another religious official. And they walked on by. They had things to do, people to preach to, things to do, meetings to attend. But then the Good Samaritan comes by, and, and what does Jesus say happens first? He said he looked at him, and he had compassion. He engaged emotionally. And that motivated him to come to that man's assistance. If we are going to have a God-oriented response to injustice, we have to engage emotionally. But don't get me wrong, emotion is not enough. It's okay to get angry. It's okay to get upset. It's okay to be frustrated. That's good. That, that anger you feel is, is God's way of pricking your heart to motivate you to get involved. But that's not enough. Because justice is not done simply by you getting upset. Justice is not done until the harm has ceased and restoration has occurred. We'll talk more about that later. Rather, justice requires emotion, but justice is not completed simply by you getting upset. You've got to move on. In fact, I, I am deeply frustrated, deeply upset by, by some in our contemporary society who think just because they got upset, put a tweet out, yelled at some people, that they have done justice. Your emotion is good, but that's not doing justice. It's merely the beginning. It's, it's merely the, the God motivating you, spurring in you that sense of indignation that he himself feels to get you going. So where do we go from there? Look with me at verse 7. Nehemiah says, after I got angry, he says, I, I seriously considered the matter. My second point, to have a God-oriented response to injustice, your actions, your actions must be motivated by clear thinking and serious prayer. Your actions must be motivated by clear thinking and serious prayer. Emotion is necessary, but it is not sufficient. And so after he got angry and he got upset, Nehemiah went to his knees. We know this from verse 1. We see how he responds when he's upset about something. He, he gets down on his knees and he prays. He comes up with a plan. The first plan was to go to Jerusalem and aid his people. And now he's, he's getting into his room and he, he's doing some research and he's trying to understand prayerfully, Lord, what do I do? 
Where does this, where, maybe he's doing some research and understanding. Where do, the, where do these injustices come from? What's the historical background? What's motivating the people that are oppressing their brothers and sisters? Who can I get involved? There is serious consideration, some serious prayer, some, some planning time that happens. It's good to emote, but you got to move from that into some serious prayer and some serious planning. And so he does that. He says, after seriously considering the matter, I, uh, I then accuse the nobles and officials, saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners, but now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. So he first engages emotionally, then he seriously considers, he plans out some things prayerfully. But the third thing he does, and this leads me to my third point, is that to have a God-oriented response in justice, you must be willing to confront biblically. Emotion, seriously considering, are but the beginning. Neither are action. To do justice requires that you actually get in some people's face. Ain't no way around it. But there are some ways to confront that are unbiblical. And so I want to unpack this concept of confronting biblically for you. Because there are four elements to it that we see Nehemiah apply in this scripture. In the first part of verse 7, he says, After seriously considering the matter, I accused, who? The nobles and officials. Now, this required a lot of courage, which is the first element of confronting biblically. Because keep in mind the political situation here. Nehemiah is actually in physical danger, right? He has opposition from outside Israel, and some of the leaders within Israel are actually loyal to that external opposition. And they are working against him to stop the progress of rebuilding the wall. And so when he goes and he accuses these nobles and officials, he is taking a serious physical, economic, and career risk. This requires courage. He had to go talk to them about what they were doing. And so to confront biblically, you might actually have to risk something. You might actually have to go talk to that boss who only promotes people of a certain gender or a certain color. You might have to go talk to that chair of your university department that doesn't think women should be full professors. You might actually have to go talk to some of your political allies about their views. It requires courage. Nehemiah took a risk. The second element that we see him doing he said, so I, after he accuses them and confronts them courageously, he says, so I called a large assembly against them. This was a protest. This wasn't a kumbaya meeting. I called an assembly against them. Right? But why do that? You should ask yourself that question, because these were private contracts. Why, why couldn't he just, why wasn't it enough to just simply go talk to them individually about their issues? Because injustice is always a community issue. And so if you're going to confront, you've not only got to confront the individuals that have the issue, but you've got to focus on the fact that the community has an issue. Because injustice does not happen without a community either endorsing it or ignoring it. The things that we care about, we stop. 
And so either we're very comfortable with it or we just don't care. And so if you're going to work on injustice, it's, it's good to address the individuals, but you've got to realize that the moral fabric of the society is at issue. It's not just about the individual perpetrators. But where are we as a society? Where are we as a community? Why are we comfortable with injustice? So to confront biblically, we've got to look at our community. We've got to look at our society. We've got to look at how we interact with one another. We've got to call people together to say, we need to be better than this. So it's not just an individual issue. It's not a matter of, of private contracts. If those contracts are unjust, that's our issue. If exploitation is happening, if, if people are hungry, that's our issue. It's not their problem. It's our problem. And so he calls the community together. He calls a protest against them. The second element of confronting biblically is you've got to involve the community. Look then what he does next. Verse 8, he says, We have done, speaking now to not only the, those who have done the wrong, but to the broad assembly, he says, We have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners. But now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. There's something interesting happening here, which points out to the third element of confronting biblically. He doesn't start off by, by talking about even the, the poor but rather, he says, he says, we, talking about himself and, and those who are with him, he says, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen. Why talk about himself? Why talk about what he has been doing right? Because Nehemiah knows that in order to confront biblically, you have to retain the moral high ground. Or to put it in the words of our Lord, before you can take the speck out of your brother's eye, you've got to take the log out of your own eye. On the words of Paul in Romans chapter 2, you who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? What's the point of all this? Hypocrisy undermines your witness. And so if you're going to confront someone biblically, you got to keep an eye on yourself too. Where are you? How are you benefiting? What are your issues? It, it is, it's not, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it's a valid response from, the, for, from those who are committing injustice to look at the other person who's bringing the injustice to them and say, well, my injustice doesn't matter because of what you've done. That's not valid. But it would be foolish for us to, to think that our own issues might not undermine our credibility. And so Nehemiah starts off by saying, look, we have done these things. We have been trying to help our brothers and sisters, right? Because you have to retain the moral high ground. And I, I love, love, love and respect so much the civil rights generation because they thought very carefully about this. They would prepare, prepare to retain the moral high ground. Because they knew that when they were out there protesting, that they were, people were going to spit on them, people were going to abuse them, and they were going to be tempted to do some stuff, to fight back. And so they would actually 
get in classrooms and train themselves how to respond, how to be dignified. They, they would put on their Sunday best when they went marching because they wanted to, to make sure everybody knew we are a moral and a dignified people. I'm confronting you, but I'm confronting you biblically. Right? We can learn a lot from that because it, it's important how you go about it. And so Nehemiah points out that, that I am, I, he, he wants to make sure that as he's confronting, he's pointing out that we have retained the moral high ground here. Not to say that he's perfect, but he's dealt with his issues first. And then he goes on, and he says, and this is the, 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 the critical element of this in verse 9. He says, what you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? Got to stop there. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? This is the whole fulcrum. Everything turns around this. Because the fourth element of confronting biblically is that it's not really about us. It's about the moral standards of a holy and a just God. And, and, and when you are comfortable with injustice, you're not just saying something about how you view another person. You're saying something about how you view God. You're saying a lot about how you view God. Because the God of the Bible is funny about justice. Talks a lot about it. In fact, I want you to consider this scenario. Imagine a judge that has his child come up before him on the death penalty. Who would trust that judge to condemn his own child to, to death? Right? We would expect that judge to recuse himself because you can't trust somebody to condemn their own child. But think about what God the Father did. He is so committed to justice, so fundamentally committed to justice that he would look at his son on that cross, having known him for eternity in perfect communion, and the scripture says he was pleased to crush him because he was committed to justice. That is our God. That is his nature. How can we worship a God like that? Sing songs about a God like that? Read his Bible and not care about justice? That's who our God is. It's not just about me versus you. It's about him. It's about his nature, his purity, his righteousness, his holiness. Justice is to align our behavior with who our God is. So Nehemiah says to them, shouldn't you fear God? How can you live like this in the fear of God? It's always about our relationship with him. Our society has fallen short of him. That is what defines injustice. There's only two ways you can get away from this. Either you must believe God isn't there. Right? I'm not accountable to him. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so I can do whatever I want. Either you got to go there, or you have to completely redefine who God is. And the Pharisees did this. 
They, 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 they created this, this, this God, not of the Bible, but their version of God was so focused on religious observance that, that he was a stickler for tithing. They would tithe their, their, their herbs and spices. But when it came to justice, God doesn't care about that. They redefined God to only care about the things they cared about. And that's what concerns me so much about the American church. We believe God exists, but what version of God? Not that it is a God, but if, we're, if we are worshiping the God who crushed his son, then we're going to care about justice. We're going to see it as an issue of our relationship with him. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God? And he goes on, he says, and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies. He, he, he's trying to shame them here. He's saying, even our enemies don't do what you're doing. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God? And, and look, people who don't even know him, they don't do these things. How can you be comfortable with it? And so he lifts high in his confrontation the moral standards of God. So to summarize the section around confrontation, it has to be courageous. It has to involve the community. It's a community issue. It's not just individuals. You've got to retain the moral high ground. And it must be based on God's nature. But confrontation is not the object. It's fun. People like protesting. They like being out in the streets. That doesn't accomplish justice. We have to keep our eyes on the prize, which is the alignment of our actions with God's standards. That's justice. And so Nehemiah keeps going in verse, um, verse chapter 10. Verse 10, he says, Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. We see there that moral high ground again. He says, please, listen to this now, please let us stop charging this interest. Return their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and fresh oil that you've been assessing them. He moves from this, the confrontation to proposing a restorative solution. And that's my fourth point. If you're going to have a God-oriented response to injustice, we have to seek a restorative solution. And there are two elements to this. Look at what he says. The first part he says in the second part of verse 10, please let us stop charging this interest. So there's an element of restorative justice that requires you stop some stuff. You got to stop doing some things. But that's not enough. That's not justice, right? Because what he says, the next stage, he says, return their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses. There is stopping and then there's restoration. Together, they are the restorative solution. Together, that does justice. Because think of it this way. Stopping stealing, is, is, that's good. If you've been robbing people, stop stealing. That's the first part. That's great. Wonderful. You're not stealing anymore. But what about the property you stole? What do you have to do? You've got you to make a restoration. So there, there are two elements to justice. You've got to stop robbing people, and you've got to restore 
You've got to seek to restore the damage that you've done. Those are the two elements we have to keep in balance when we're seeking restorative justice. That, that is the nature of biblical justice. You look throughout the law and you will see this concept. Stop doing these things and then restore the damage you've done. You stole a cow, bring back two. Right? They're, they're, those are the, the elements of restorative justice. So we have to ask, as we do that serious consideration, what are the things in our society that need to stop? And what are the things that, that also need to happen to bring some restoration? And I'm not proposing that we put anybody above anybody. But we have to acknowledge that the damage has been done. And simply stopping the damage is not enough. Right? Y'all ain't slaves anymore. Great! But what about the damage done? How do we have a conversation about those things? How do we restore some of the damage? I've stopped exploiting you economically. Okay, but you were doing it for 30 years. What about the restoration? Can we talk about that? How, how do we do that? How do we create shalom? No one above another person, but together. True equality. I used to struggle with this concept in my, uh, my brother, uh, Pastor Brian Loritz. Um, in his book, um, right, uh, right Color, Wrong Culture, um, he gives this example, and it is, it's amazing. It just really crystallized this concept for me, which is a biblical concept, as you can see in Nehemiah here. But he, told, he, he gives this example. He says, imagine two football teams are playing, maybe two little league teams, right? And you've got team A and you've got team B. And the, because you know how parents get with little league, right? Um, some of the parents for Team A, they bribe the officials to, you know, let's not notice when my kid does something wrong, right? And so this game starts, and the officials, they let Team A get away with everything. Kids hurting other people, kicking people. They don't call anything. But everything is called perfectly on Team B, right? And so by, by the middle of the game, by halftime, Team A is racked up like 50 points, and Team B is struggling. But the officials are like, man, ah, I shouldn't have done that. You know what? From now on, I'm going to call it straight. And so halftime's over. The second half of the game, they call it straight. Right? Everything is, they've stopped the injustice. But what happens at the end of the game? Team B loses. Why? Because for the first half, damage had been done. The other side had accumulated some benefits. That even though the injustice stopped, it actually carried on because there was no restoration. They took care of the first part of justice. They did nothing about the second part. Right? And so there has to be, there has to be an idea, a sense of how do we do restorative justice? How do we do, get both part A and part B together? Some stuff needs to stop, but some other things do need to happen. And so Nehemiah proposed that. He says, let's stop charging this interest, but then let's also return. Let's help. Let's come alongside. And in verse 12, they respond great. They said, we will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. And so you might look at that and say, oh, victory. We can go home. But Nehemiah doesn't stop there because he knows the human heart. Because one of the things you have to understand about injustice is its source. Injustice comes from the human heart. 
The scripture talks about that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride in possessions. We like stuff. We like pleasure. And if I can get some stuff and get some pleasure at your expense, I'm going to do it. And that is the human heart. And so because of that, the natural tendency of those in power, anybody in power, is to move towards injustice because we're all corrupt. That's the witness of the scripture. And so in systems, in human institutions, you need something that Nehemiah puts in place, accountability. He said, so I summoned the priests and made everyone take an oath to do this. The promise wasn't enough in verse 12. And then he says, I also shook the folds of my robe and said, may God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise, may he be shaken out and have nothing and the whole assembly said, amen, they praise the Lord. Then the people did as they had promised. So there, there's a process of accountability with some consequences that come alongside doing this justice. And so because Nehemiah understood the true, biblically defined nature of humanity, he knew that the promise wasn't enough. But ultimately, ultimately, Nehemiah would win in this circumstance. It says the people did as they promised. Some folks got their land back. Some people got some food. They got their children back from indentured servitude. Nehemiah won. But ultimately he would lose because he would die. And injustice would rise again in Israel. The Greeks would come on and they would oppress the people. The Romans would take over from the Greeks and they would oppress the people. And under the Romans, the Pharisees would oppress the people. Oppression would, would come back because Nehemiah could only deal with the temporal issue. He couldn't deal with the fundamental disease that caused the symptoms of injustice. And so under the Romans and under the Pharisees, God would send another man. And this man, would, he would come. He would come and, and he would come saying, I am here to preach good news to the poor. I am here to set the captives free. I am here to declare recovery of sight to the blind. He, I am here to set free those who are oppressed. And he would do justice in his life. He would heal and he would deliver, but he wouldn't just do that in his life. He would take care not only of temporal injustice, but the ultimate cause. He would deal with the human heart. He would make it possible for you and I to have a new nature. Make it possible for the oppressed and the oppressor to be set free from the oppression of sin. Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. And so as we look at this scripture, as we see this process, look past Nehemiah to Jesus. Look past him to the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one the scripture says justice and righteousness are the foundation of your throne. Have hope in times of injustice. Have hope in times of oppression. Because Jesus has taken care of it. And he's coming back. He's coming back to repay. He's coming back to set up a new kingdom, a new society, a new humanity, and justice will roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, because he will have dealt with the foundational issue is sin in our hearts. And so no matter what you're going through, no matter what you might go through in the future, look to Jesus. 
He's greater than Nehemiah. Let us pray. Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you and it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally, nationally, and internationally. You can go to epiphanyfellowship.org, go under give and consider donating. Thank you. Take care. See you next week.